Hello, everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. Alarm room 2, engine 19, rescue 19, respond to San Mateo, Montgomery. Speed firebox 197107. Speed 29 Delta 2, vehicle versus motorcycle. San Mateo, Montgomery, 29 Delta 2, engine 19, rescue 19. Hello and welcome to another episode of the FR Podcast. Today I'm joined by Captain Kevin Ferrando. Thanks for coming on again, Kevin. Good to have you here. Thanks, Andrew. All right, today we're going to be doing an uh, all-encompassing trauma episode. So we're pretty much trying to hit every trauma guideline that's, that's in there. We're going to have two crazy patients that are going to let us do that. Um, before we do that, though, I just wanted to have a quick uh, discussion on the new NARC box procedure. So that's relatively new, and there's been a little bit of confusion on what's going on with the NARC box. So for those of you who already got it down, good for you, but this is for everybody else that still has some confusion. So what's going on with the new NARC box procedure? Okay, hopefully I can clarify this. As you go into your daily checks, you're going to want to make sure that you get on shift. You're going to go into the rescue. Uh, The ongoing, offgoing officers need to be present. You're going to do shift change. At that point, uh, it's going to require both pins to be entered. And then open the box, check the meds, and you're going to enter three and two. So 300 for Fent and 20 milligrams for Versed. Close the door, and the report should be the box takes care of everything else. To make it simpler and in a perfect world, we want this box to be connected to Wi-Fi, and we want it to be resynced. So I know not every station that uh, rescues are parked in the what the narc boxes actually have reception to so sometimes we're forced to actually do a hot spot and uh, we don't have to really get into that right now but um, if you're having any problems with the box not accepting your pin or if you're having problems with the box not you know just doing what it needs to be doing whether it's not opening or whether it's frozen uh, this high-tech method of unplug it <laughs> so i know it's it seems like a pretty generic answer uh, it's what we've been telling everybody. So you're going to put uh, tech services out of business. Yeah, right. Um, so uh, if you're having any issues with the box, unplug it, give it a couple of minutes. It doesn't shut off, but it will actually reset it once you plug it back in. So once it's you've gone through the unplug, replug, now the next troubleshooting is going to be hit the cog in the top right, and then you're going to go and find your Wi-Fi settings. And if you have a hotspot, or if you have to turn on a hotspot to get it to pick up Wi-Fi, you can use the MDT. So just normal computer mode, go into settings on that, find hotspot, and then I'll have to enter the password once you find it on the NARC box. Uh, I find it easier just to use my cell phone. Not everyone likes to do it with the cell phone, but you just turn your hotspot on, same thing, find the Wi-Fi, uh, enter the password, and then once you're up, just make sure the box gets synced. So that solves a lot of the problems. You come into work, you do shift change, you do your log. On day two, uh, if you haven't been relieved and you're just doing your normal um, inventory, you're going to want to do the audit button on the bottom right. And same thing, make sure you're on Wi-Fi, make sure the box is updated and synced. Audit's going to give you the option to enter what you have, open the door, count your meds, back to three and two, close. And if it's on Wi-Fi and it's synced, it's operating how we needed to. It's given us attempts. It's giving us the times. It's given us the meds, and everything should be should be good to go at that point. And if there's any problems, you can always call seven eight. Uh, we've 
been dealing with a lot of the issues on this and we're, you know, we know there's going to be some growing pains with it, but the big thing is unplug Wi-Fi connected and sync. All right. Cause I think I, uh, I've hit inventory a couple times. Is well, that wrong. So that adds that adds stock to the box. So if you come in on day one, or let's say it's your day two, and you you do your inventory, you hit inventory, it gives you three. You put three two, and then you know the next shift comes in. Their day two, they hit inventory, they put three two. Now it's showing the box has six and four, so forth, so on. So that way, it's it just keeps adding inventory to it. Um, we're just auditing it, so we know we have three, and we know we have two. And let's say you're going to give an arc log the meds in narc box and then you're going to do the normal reporting so if you have waste you can waste with 78 or you're on duty bc uh you're going to do uh contact 78 as soon as you can we're going to come out like normal have to do the proof of use form still in image trend and still have to do the paper form so that way we have something to give to pharmacy so replacing the narcotic doesn't change anything it's just when you give it just log it in narc box and then it's your normal image trend reporting, seven, eight phone call, replace the med. Nice. All right. Thanks for clearing that up. All right. So let's get into this all encompassing trauma. I know when I'm going in, working on the rescue every once in a while still, um, I just like to prepare myself for the worst case scenario. So if we do have that worst case call, we have a trauma arrest. Um, refresh us real quick on the guidelines for a trauma arrest. When we look at trauma arrest, it's usually blunt, blunt force or it's going to be penetrating trauma. And, you know, the traumatic arrest is not going to have a pulse. That's going to be that person who their, their injury was pretty severe. You show up on scene, you, you look, listen, feel, check for pulse. They have no pulse. So we know in blunt, it's, it's a little more bleak, um, but still look, listen, feel, open the airway, modify jaw thrust, airway adjunct if necessary. You're going to use a BVM. You're going to give rescue breaths, paramedic on scene needle decompression. If a return of pulse, then it kind of changes where we're, we start moving that patient towards getting off scene. If nothing changes with that blunt force trauma after we've done decompressions, uh, some airway maneuvers, it's a discontinue efforts. Okay. So how does it change if it's a penetrating injury? So penetrating, we're a little more hopeful. There's things that those trauma surgeons or ER docs can do uh, that can give these people a better chance of survi survival because with that blunt force, it's that injury is, you know, there's something dissected, there's massive hemorrhaging going on inside. We don't know where that injury is, but with a trauma, sometimes they can, pen it, they can pinpoint it a little bit better and they have procedures. They can either open the chest, clamp, clamp, get them off to the OR and hopefully, you know, you know make a difference in that person's life or save that person's life. Right. So according so, to our guidelines, though, what's the criteria that you would even have a, a chance to transport that patient so for us same thing we show up on scene look listen feel no signs of uh you know they're they're pulseless and apneic no signs of life so going back to abc's open airway jaw thrust um airway adjuncts kind of still minding that spinal precautions making sure we're not moving that neck in case there's any kind of a um, c-spine injury um expose the patient needle decompression there again and then um if there's no pulse after you've done the airway and the needle compression, if you have a PEA of greater than 40 and your transport time is less than 10 minutes to UNM, which is our level one trauma center, then you can initiate transport. So I know it's kind of a, it's a bit of a judgment call, different stations that are, you know, further out from UNM, uh, time of day, 
Uh, a lot. What I like to tell crews a lot of times is, though, if you feel that this is the best chance that you need to get this patient off, if they're right at that 40 PEA, maybe you're a little bit further out, you know, uh, just err on the side of caution if that's what makes you more comfortable. It's it's really hard just to, to say, no, we're going to DC. This is super legalistic. We're just going to read this guideline as it says. I know it's 5 o'clock on a Tuesday. We're never going to make it to UNM. We're coming from Station 20, DC. But if that's not what you feel and this patient looks like you can make a difference, whether once you start getting more interventions in place, then by all means, I don't think it's inappropriate to transport. So I know we're not in the habit of bringing dead people to the ER, but it happens. And so it's going to happen and it's going to continue to happen, but let's just do what we think is best for that patient. Okay. Yeah. I, I think I look at it the complete opposite direction as you is like, if I'm greater than 10 minutes from an ER, like if I know I'm working up at uh, say 14s or something like that, then I already know going into this, if I'm on any trauma rest, I'm not getting to the ER in 10 minutes. So that kind of lets me know going into that cycle that, uh, you know, trauma rest, whether it's blunt or penetrating, I'm going to treat it the same way. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know it's, I'm trying to be positive on this. Uh, if I'm coming from 16s and I show up on that penetrating trauma and, you know, PE greater than 40, uh, it's probably going to be a DC on scene. Okay. There's, there's a lot of times where it's just not realistic to take that person, scoop and run, get them in the back of the unit and, you know, run across town because we're probably going to be, the efforts are, efforts are probably futile. Yeah. All right. All right, so let's move on to maybe a little bit more hopeful patient, but still pretty messed up. Uh, imagine you're working up at Rescue 8, and you are got a motorcycle that ran a red light, uh, ran into a truck, and got launched like 20 feet. So you show up on scene. Again, this patient's like 20 feet away. His motorcycle helmet is cracked. Your driver starts doing his assessment. He's going to do a head-to-toe. First thing he noticed when he walks up is a mangled right tib-fib with uh, lots of blood coming out. He's not sure if it's arterial or venous, just a ton of blood coming out. Um, he starts, um, let's see, you guys are able to uh, get that helmet removed, and he can continue with his assessment. This person has a depressed skull fracture, and he's unresponsive. When you give him a sternal rub, he's got cerebral posturing. He's got a flail chest on the right side. He's got a little bit of intestine coming out of his abdomen. He's got crepitus in the pelvis. Uh, he does have a radial pulse, road rash on the right arm and the right side of his back. And his right index finger has been amputated, but it's sitting right there next to him. So where do you start on this patient? Wow, you got to, gave me a lot there, Andrew. Uh, talk about multi-system trauma. You know, you, you said a lot of stuff's already kind of been going on. Driver's already got the helmet. Your rescue driver has taken the helmet off. They're starting to do a primary assessment. They're starting to expose that patient. You know, this, this is a critical call. And so um, this person, what we can do on scene is probably going to be somewhat limited, but we're going to start going through just head to toe, primary assessment, you know, working that trauma triage algorithm. So you've, you've, you've walked up and you, you're kind of assessing this scene as you, as you approach this patient. So you find out he has a pulse, um, GCS of probably what, four in this case, you know, um, so start going down your ABCs and, you know, let's get the airway maintained. Um, you're going to start working on getting him trauma naked. You're going to start working on seeing, uh, do we have any massive hemorrhage? Uh, we'll control those bleeds. So 
it's all very, very kind of coordinated. At the same time, it's also very rushed. And so uh, for me, I think walking up as the rescue lieutenant or even as the rescue driver or whoever it is, my first thing is I just, you start visually looking at that patient. What can we fix right now? Okay, so let's make him trauma naked. You see that uh, he's got all these distracting injuries. I mean, there's a finger over here. He's eviscerated here. Um, he's got a cracked helmet. So all these are things that are telling you that this patient is in bad shape and needs a hospital right away. Uh, what can we do now? So if we see massive bleeds, we need to start, we need to control that because we know he's not going to live very long if we can't control that bleed. So as, as soon as you start assessing that patient, you're kind of treating him too. Let's get the bleed. Let's get the C-spine. Let's get, uh, you know, trauma naked. Let's start working on making that more advanced or more secure airway. And then as, as this just process has happened, whether we're applying tourniquets, you know, we're making that, getting that gurney out of that rescue, or we're seeing where that 5.5 five is in relation to what we've done on scene. Okay, yeah. So what's your uh, threshold on that? You know, if you have 5.5 five, five, five minutes out, like where's where's your line of uh, we're getting out of here? What are you doing on scene? You know, how long will you wait for 5.5? Five, five? What's your answer to that? Uh, not very long. So we're, we're getting off scene as quickly as we can. We're not going to, you know, we can get IVs in back of truck. If you can do it in the back of a truck, um, we're not going to do it on scene necessarily. So obviously if we can, you know, get them trauma naked, we can get the C-spine stabilized and we can get the airway taken care of, get them ventilated. Uh, we've addressed a few things really quickly. So let's say that that takes them a minute, minute and a half. If they're still four or five minutes out, we're not going to start working on IV on scene. That's when we're working on getting that patient onto the gurney, getting in the back, and then we'll get that IV in route. So I think it's just, you know, I have no problem if they're 30 seconds out or if they're, you can see them or you can hear them because now we're still, we're, still, we're still taking care of patient care things on scene. But if we can do it in the back of a truck, we shouldn't be doing it on scene. Yeah, and I think uh, Dr. Pruitt has a good lecture from uh, last year where she says, really, the only thing that we need to worry about on scene, um, sea collar, of course, and then treating that massive hemorrhage. So getting a tourniquet on, which you've already mentioned, and then treating that airway. And then once those are taken care of, then, you know, if you have no five, five at that time, then you need to, you need to be, go. And in order to make that happen, you need to have the gurney already out of the rescue, right? So you can, you can be prepared to load and go with your rescue. And then if, five, five just happens to show up, then you just, you know, go with their gurney, but have everything in place. So once you get those interventions done that need to happen on scene, um, then you're able to either load on your gurney or load on their gurney and you're not delaying, uh, your scene time at all. Yeah. And that's the big thing. We're not delaying scene time. So it, it's completely appropriate to ask, but we're not going to delay anything that's going to compromise patient care. Nice. All right. So this, this was like, the worst patient ever he hit almost all of our uh trauma guidelines yeah so. he, he really did uh there's only one or two that you you may have <laughs> missed in there no taser i don't think and yeah. uh, that's about that's about it right so you know you ask yourself how are you supposed to prioritize this patient and um again on one of dr pruitt's lectures she uses the uh, acronym x abc's so x is for exsanguiation um so again that massive hemorrhage and you just have to do that because if you're, you start going ABCs, this person again could have bled out already. So you got to stop that massive hemorrhage first. 
Um, the military we use a mnemonic called March. So massive hemorrhage, airway. They change, you know, respiration instead of breathing, and then circulation. And then at the end of it, it puts a H on there to remind you about um, hypothermia and head injuries. So if we look at this patient and we use this March mnemonic, um, we can look down and see like, what are we going to do and and what priority, what order? So start with the M massive hemorrhage. We're going to throw a tourniquet on that leg. That's got massive bleeding. So again, if you can't differentiate arterial or venous bleeding, just if it's a lot of blood and you can't control it with direct pressure based on your resources at the time, throw a tourniquet on there. Um, move down to A. So this person, again, had a GCS of four. We're going to be able to insert an LMA on that person. Um, and you said they had a possible basal or skull fracture, so hold off on any kind of nasal, and not that we nasally intubate anymore, anybody anymore since it's been removed now, but no MPA. Yeah, no MPA, right. Cool. All right, so, and then with that, that's kind of at the point where now we're getting this patient off scene and beginning to transport as we're, in the uh, ambulance going in, we're going to want to listen to lung sounds, see if it, uh, with that flail chest, see if there's a need for a needle decompression, assess the lung sounds. And you should be very suspicious of that just based on the mechanism of injury. Um, so, Kevin, I wanted to get into the treatment of a flail chest. I know it's always was kind of like something when I was going through, they would always bring it up. It turns out that flail chest is not very common, but um, what's going to be... So you're starting that secondary assessment, uh, you know, that head to toe, you're going through, you're palpating the body, you get putting hands on everywhere. You feel that, that you have this just massive spot on the, you know, one of the sides of the rib cage that's, that's uh, completely, um, you know, mushy and, and moving every time that patient breathes in and out, that paradoxical movement when he's breathing in or breathing out or when he's being ventilated. Uh, we used to what get a bag of saline, you kind of uh, pat it along the side of the rib that, or rib cage there that's affected. Uh, I know you were, we were talking earlier and you were saying that we're focusing now on that positive pressure ventilation. So if this person already, if we've already gotten this a secure airway, say an LMA in place on this individual, and we're just by our process of bagging him, we're creating that positive pressure, which there should hopefully uh, not give us that, that paradoxical movement because we're now giving that positive pressure from our, uh, our manual ventilations. Right. Yeah. And just, and just, so that the positive pressure will be effective in treating it, and then just again be suspicious of uh, developing tension pneumo, is what you want to take away from right. a rib fracture, or flail chest, anything like that. I, um, I know Dr. Pruitt always says vitals are vital, and so especially if you have that, uh, you know, the box, the chest area, that thorax, and you have that, uh, you know, you're probably going to have a collapsed lung or a pulmonary contusion, and you're talking simple pneumo or tension pneumo, um, you know. When we start deciding when to, to dart this patient is when they start going down that tension pneumophysiology. So what are our signs and symptoms? I know we've talked about, I think we did a podcast a while back on tension pneumophysiology and, uh, you know, that the neck veins being present. Uh, yeah, absent lung, lung signs, sounds. Yeah, JVD. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with this trauma patient, once you start having, um, you know, the tension pneumo starts to affect the uh, – blood pressure but in this case it'd be hard because you're not sure what's affecting the blood pressure yeah, there's so much going on so but much multi-system yeah, trauma those are the classic individual. signs of attention absent lung sounds um jvd hypotension things like that okay so again with this patient with all kinds of injuries we're going to move down this march mnemonic so we hit the r was uh, needle decompression if needed we get to c for circulation so this is where we remember to uh we, ch we already checked the pelvis. It sounded like we had an unstable pelvis. We're going to hit a 
a pelvic splint on there. Um, also get IV IO access. Um, Kevin, if you could talk about, let's see, pelvic splint placement and also um, what kind of IV fluids do we need for this person? Sure. So as far as the pelvic splint goes, um, you know, we're going to make sure this person, you're going to palpate this, that pelvis and you're going to find that it's unstable. So you're going to try to slide the pelvic binder is going to be our preferred choice to get this thing stabilized. Um, a lot of potential for this patient to bleed out if, if that, if that pelvis is unstable and it, it potentially severs an artery that's very vascular, uh, may not even know that it's bleeding at the time. So as far as getting the sling out, you're going to just want to slide it underneath the patient. Um, try to get it a um, level of the buttocks along the line between the greater trochanters and the siphonous pubis. So in other <laughs> words, the bottom of the hip and the top of the legs. There we go. Yeah. That's to make it more simplified. I think it's just lower than maybe you think, right? It's not all the way up at the iliac crest. It's just, it's going to be a little bit lower than, than you Below the waistline suspect, yeah. above the legs. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So um, fold, uh, you're going to unfold it. You're going to make sure that you place the buckles close to the midline. You're going to grab the orange handle on the outer side of the flap. And once it's all buckled and you have it pulled through, just tighten it up. It should have a, a release so we can't over-tighten it once it's in place, and then uh, we should be good. Nice. Okay, so with the uh, IV fluid, again, um, let's see, this patient did have a radial pulse. We're finally able to get a blood pressure, and I think their blood pressure is going to be uh, 95 over 68. Okay, so going down, and now we're still on that C for our circulation. We know that this individual, like we said, has lots of distracting injuries. Uh, we've addressed the bleed with the uh, tourniquet on his leg. Uh, we're going to be constantly reassessing this individual, especially that tourniquet. They tend to, you know, sometimes we'll loosen up. If we have to place a second tourniquet, um, that's going to be our desired choice. We're not going to take that one off and retighten it. Um, if you can get another turn and maybe the first one, that's fine, but we're not removing anything. It's going to be second tourniquet, more dressings, more dressings. And then um, as we're trying to keep that patient's blood pressure in that systolic of 90 or greater, we're going to start looking at our fluid boluses. Um, along those lines, we're not going to be over fluid uh, boluses in this individual because we don't want to, say, break any clots that may have formed on its own. 500 used to be the kind of the basis, 500 times two, depending on, the, on how where this patient's at. So I think it's titrate to effect. We're just really going to closely monitor where the blood pressure stays in relation to the bolus that we're giving. Yeah, so now it's uh, permissive hypotension is the term for right. it. So if we've got a pressure right now, again, it's 95 over 68, So, and the person still had a radial pulse. So you just establish a IV or IO access, and, uh, and that's it. You don't need to give any fluid at that time again. Uh, once you lose that radial pulse or the pressure drops below 90, now we're going to want to try to bump it up to, to maintain that 90 as our target. But there's not just an arbitrary 500cc bolus, as you mentioned already. Correct. Okay. Um, all right. So, again, we're talking about a March mnemonic. So, we made it through M-A-R-C, and now we're on H. And that is going to remind you to treat head injuries and hypothermia. So... We started off with this patient. I told you the blood pressure. They started off with the radial pulse. It started off fast at like 120, and now that radial pulse is dropping, and it's down to 60. So what kind of clue does that let you in on? Um, uh, so our patient's now decom decompensating, and so uh, neurogenic shock, hemorrhagic shock, 
Uh, we're starting to lose those pressures. So now we're starting to look at that fluid challenge. But addressing this individual's head, his, his head trauma, in addition to all this other multi-system trauma, we're going to want to make sure that bed is positioned at a 30-degree angle. And we're going to go ahead and just continue our ventilations to keep that individual's, hopefully get that individual's uh, systolic back up, keep his capnography in, in a 30, 35 range. You know, just make sure that uh, we don't overfluid challenge them, but that we try to just maintain that pressure. Yeah, so this person, if you got somebody, you know, they start off, there's there's lots of uh, things happening in the body right now. So they could have started off as like hemorrhagic shock. So they're going to have a increased blood pressure or increased heart rate, sorry, decreased blood pressure. Um, but if you see that heart rate starting to go down, um, especially in this patient who had a depressed skull fracture, you can um, just start to think about uh, a head injury. So hypothermia treatment, again, remember these patients, um, hypothermia is a killer also. So just keep them covered up once, once you do your treatment, obviously maybe have the, uh, the heater blowing in the back, even if it feels super hot to you, this patient, you know, they've lost so much blood volume, which the blood helps insulate the body and uh, keep it warm. So when they lose it, it, it gets them colder. Right. Just, just going down that shock treatment, keep them warm. Hopefully keep that systolic up. Okay. So man, there's still more to this patient. All right. So splinting, we didn't talk about that. So the evisceration, we didn't talk about that. Um, right. So when do we do these? A lot has happened. Um, let's say, you know, so we, we got on scene, we've packaged, we've done all this. Uh, we're, we're underway. Hopefully someone grabbed his severed finger. If we're going to be dealing with amputations, you know, we're probably not going to have a Ziploc bag and a bag of ice, but what we do have is a rubber glove and a cold, com uh, cold compress. So whether or not that's not high on our list, maybe of priorities in this individual, but it's something that if you, you know, the right patient, um, maybe this is the right patient, but you can grab the finger, um, try to keep it as sterile as possible, try to keep it as intact as possible and try to keep it cool. So, you know, you're in the back of the truck, we're heading down to UNM. And as we continue and just reassess this patient, secondary uh, secondary surveys being completed or has been completed, and you're coming back to things. You know these these, these assessments are kind of circular. You you just keep rotating through them. So we see that we he has an evisceration. You're going to go ahead and get your sterile dressings out. Make sure they get moist with sterile water, and you're just going to cover that uh, that part of the intestine that's coming out of the stomach. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, if you have time to get to the tip fib, you can splint that, uh, again, some of this stuff, right. That's why we're talking about like, what's your priority. Maybe all you're going to be able to do, depending on how many people you have in the back with you is get a tourniquet on that leg initially and, uh, bag the patient the whole way going in. Maybe like, you know, you have so few resources, but going through this, hopefully that helps you out of like, what's the priority again, uh, March is useful, massive hemorrhage, airway, respiration, circulation, and then hypothermia or head injuries. Um, and then if you can do other things like splinting or treating that evisceration before you get to the hospital, again, this is all going to be, you know, if you weren't at rescue eight and you were at rescue three, you know, you're probably not getting to yeah, very it, much of this. Like we said, you know, time's going to dictate a lot of this. Uh, you're going to have, uh, if it's at station 20, station 16s, uh, 22s, you're probably going to have enough time to maybe put some splint on that tib fib, um, depending on how bad it is, uh, depending on how much time you have, and depending on how many hands you have in the back of that unit.
Yeah, so. that's a question I had for you actually is how many, right? Because a lot of times we've got the resources, but it's just going to be up to, uh, say, that rescue officer to decide like, hey, this is how many guys I want in the back with me, whether it's in the back of AAS um, or in the back of the rescue. So how many guys do you like to have back there? I don't think there's a magic number. Um, I've probably seen four or five people in the back of a unit, and I've never felt we've had too many hands in the back of a truck for the most part. Uh, you know, the rescue lieutenant might be tucked kind of in the corner, the AS officer, uh, paramedics in the captain's seat. He's, whether he's doing some procedures or whether he's focusing on the radio report. And then you have two or three extra set of hands where they're, they're getting interventions done. And so um, nice to have IV tech or, I mean, uh, intermediates or paramedics, you know, just so they can do some more of those advanced skills. But BLS is, is can do a tremendous amount too because trauma for the most part is a lot of BLS. So it's, you know, addressing bleeds and stabilizing wounds and placing holes and plugging holes. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. That's two good points that you brought up that triggered my memory is I've never felt like I've had somebody in the way either. So I think the more hands, the better. And also uh, when you're talking about the, the cyclical manner, kind of like reassessing, like if you're ever just in the back helping out, like if you're wondering what you should do, just why don't you just go through a head to toe again, right? Start at the head, work your way down, and uh, you'll find something that you either need to reassess or maybe something that you haven't gotten to yet, like this evisceration or a, a splinting or something like that. So if you're sitting around wondering what you should do, uh, probably start with reassessment and uh, that to include vital signs. So that's always a good place to start. Okay, so we're going to assume that we didn't have AS on this call and we're going to have to do a quick load and go in our rescue. Um, can you talk us through a radio report and what the hospital is looking for? Um, again, we're up at rescue eight. This incident happened on tramway. Um, what's the radio report going to sound like? So, you know, the, obviously the radio report is to notify the hospital that we're coming in with a, with a critical patient, you know, uh, rescue eight, five to 10 minutes after they're packaged in the back of the unit probably is going to be your transport time. So once you've, you've had a, enough time to stabilize everything. And depending on how many people are in the back, uh, we have the radios mounted right there at the captain's seat. Just going to grab the radio, put it to med two. And so that's going to notify base that we're requesting UNM channel med one. So you'll say med two or rescue eight on med two requesting med one UNMH. And they'll tell you, yes, it's clear. So that means there's nobody on that radio at that time. So you'll switch your radio then to med one. So Notify UNM. Rescue 8 to UNM. UNM go. We're en route to your facility. Code 3 with a 25-year-old male. Motorcycle accident. Launched 30 feet. Multi-system trauma. He has blown pupil. Sustained uh, traumatic injury to lower leg. Sustained injury to his chest and abdomen. Uh, unstable pelvis. He's GCS of 4. We have a heart rate of 60. We have a blood pressure of 95 over 68. We're uh, bagging at 16 times a minute. Uh, we have a tourniquets on to control the bleeding. We've darted the right side of his chest, and we do have a pelvic binder in place. We will be uh, at your facility in about 10 minutes. Uh, any needs or questions for us? Nice. Yeah, so, you know, with this patient, this is going to be a lot longer than a normal radio report, but you just want to get down uh, to the most important things. Um, what I like to use as an acronym, uh, something we use in the military is AT-MIST. Um, so the A is the age, the T is the time, 
that it occurred. And sometimes this is necessary. Sometimes it's not necessary if it's like a stroke patient. So we have an 82 year old female who had stroke like symptoms at the time now is important. If it's, you know, started five hours ago or, or, uh, you know, 20 hours ago. So that's where that time comes in. And then moving down for the missed part of it, the M mechanism of injury. So motorcycle accident injuries sustained, which is that long list that we had, um, signs or vital signs list those off and then the treatment that you've given so far. So AT missed is something that you can use to remember it. Some of the uh, other details, you can include that more in like your face to face. So getting down to all the specific injuries, maybe we can just save that for when you're actually face to face. Yeah. And what it does though, uh, so the the UNM will then tap that out. So they'll notify the trauma recess room that uh, rescue aid is a tramway and the freeway, they're 10 minutes out from their facility and then they have a motorcycle accident. So uh, usually the page will include vitals, um, but there's not a whole lot more details that the trauma recess team will have. Right. So really, and again, I I used to work at press and I took these radio calls and really all it is is like the guy taking the radio call, letting all the doctors know, hey, somebody messed up is coming in and uh, we need to have as many hands as we can um, to treat this patient. So. Um, again, getting that information out there, alerting the hospital is most important. Um, I do like to write it out a little bit of like what I'm going to say, you know, if you're the one calling in that radio report, I like to just jot down the last set of vital signs. I like to, again, my AT missed acronym. I like to kind of just write it out. So I have it all right in front of me. What's the age, um, mechanism of injury, what the major injuries they have last set of vital signs and what treatment have I given? So I'll just jot that down some notes real quick. And then if I, you know, have a brain fart going in, I can just look down at my, my notes and, uh, finish up that radio report. Yeah. And on the patient turnover, you're like, you were saying, Andrew, you can kind of include a little bit more detailed, you know, um, obviously they're, they're getting things spun up as the trauma recess team sees the patient, they're getting them transferred over, uh, during this time. That's when you're kind of going to give the story of what happened, what you saw on scene, uh, what you were able to accomplish in route, what you need to do or what still needs to be done. And then uh, I always like to include as many sets of vitals as I can. So our initial vitals were as follows and patient, you know, improved or started to uh, crash and we had to do other things. So just to give that trauma team an uh, idea of where is this patient trending? Okay. So again, this patient, everything possible almost that could go wrong with him is going wrong. So what happens if he loses his pulse in route to the hospital? So uh, it's now a trauma arrest and we're not going to do CPR. So you're still going to kind of go back to that trauma arrest algorithm. And what can we, what, 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 what have we not fixed? So are we still maintaining airway? Are we still ventilating for him? Yes. Has anything changed? Do we have good lung sounds? Yes. Would it be beneficial to dart the other side? Maybe. I don't know. You know, uh, can we address volume replacement? Is there, what what major has changed in this? So it's uh, really uncomfortable to not do compressions. I think it's, it, it we're wired. That's what we've been told from, you know, early on through basic, through as you move through the ranks or however your licensure, medical licensure goes, uh, you know, CPR when a pulse person doesn't have a pulse. So we know that this was not a cardiac problem. This is a volume problem. So the thought is that if we do chest compressions, we're not helping this person with volume. Um, It could be that PEA where maybe his heart still is moving some blood through. 
we just can't feel it. And so is by us pushing on this person's chest going to do them any benefit? And so there's a lot of science out there. Um, what we've adopted is we're going to try to maintain uh, good BLS in the most part, maintain that ABCs, or at least the A and the C, try to keep the airway maintained um, and volume replace for uh, the fluid loss. And once we get them in the ED, it's, it's sometimes a little uncomfortable turning over a person and not doing something. Yeah. we are doing something yeah and just explain what happened right and say right. hey we, we did a load and go because they had a pulse initially and then they lost um, pulses in route and therefore we didn't do any compressions and here they are and most likely the uh, er they're going to call that patient deceased uh when you show up but uh, that's yeah a, that's and i've seen decision. them you know it's most of the time um they will start compressions but not always uh it's just going to be whatever they're you know at that point turnovers occurred and they're going to treat the patient how they feel yeah all right. Just know that uh, if they ever question you, just like, well, that's our guidelines is we're not doing compressions on this person. So, And they've been educated enough now. Um, Dr. Pruitt's been great. And I think that most of the, the individuals who we do turn over attendings or resi- residents at UNM um, don't question it at all. Okay. So we're going to move on uh, to a different patient with all kinds of bad things happening to him. Uh, we've got a 40-year-old uh, doing something he shouldn't have been doing in the basement. There was an explosion uh, that went off, and now this patient is stuck underneath a really heavy shelf. Uh, it took about 20 minutes for somebody to get home and call 911 for him. So uh, by the time you show up, it's been 20 to 30 minutes. You can see that he's still stuck under uh, about a 500-pound shelf. Um, the patient is conscious. He's in very severe pain. He's got a uh, three-inch glass shard sticking out of his eye. It's one of the first things you notice. Um, He's also got some burns to his face and neck, uh, estimated about 5% burns. Um, But really the main thing is this person's stuck under the shelf, so you're not even able to uh, get that transport going um, until Squad 2 has to come out and uh, get their airbags going. Um, All right, so what are going to be your thoughts for treatment of this patient? Um, either before they get out of that entrapment and after. So, yeah, Andrew, you, there again, we have a lot of lot of things happening in this patient. Um, so he's going to be a crush injury. Uh, is going to be our one of our big concerns right now. Um, you know, not to take away from our normal ABCs, where we're still giving that primary assessment where we walk in, you look and see, is he awake? Um, is he perfusing? Is he breathing on his own? Um, you know, we know we, we see all these these injuries. He's got some burns to his face. Um, so we have thermal burns. We have crushed. We have eye injury. Uh, so we know that we're going to be down for a little while, and we know we can't do anything uh, as far as getting that shelf off of him. That's that's uh, that's that's we're waiting on Squad Two to show up to you know start working on that extrication of that. Uh, one of the things we can start doing, though, is maintaining the, air, the ABCs. So are we breathing for him? Um, does he have an open airway? Yeah, this guy's conscious and breathing. Um, he's sat in like 95 right now. He's just screaming in pain. Uh, okay. But, yeah, it looks like his um, ABCs are taken care of right now. Okay, so we're going to start getting those uh, vital signs. You know, what's his O2 sat? What's yeah. his, uh, you know, capnography at? What's his blood pressure at? And uh, are we going to need to start, um, you know, oxygenating him? Is he uh, keeping his airway open on its own? Yeah, yeah, so far, airway's good. Okay, so 
We really can't address too much of the spinal precautions. Uh, we can try to maintain, you know, inline C-spine. We're going to want to get him on the cardiac monitor, see what his heart rate is and uh, what, we, what, we, uh, what we can monitor there. IV access? Uh, real quick on the C-spine. Let's just say, say this guy is stuck kind of like from the waist down. So um, let's just assume that we're able to get a collar on him. Okay, so um, collar on him. C-spine's probably clear, but mostly we're just worried about those lower extremities with that, uh, that weight on him. Uh, so we're going to want to, with an entrant patient or a crush patient, we're probably going to figure this is going to be a pretty quick extrication. Um, we're going to go ahead and get those two large bore IVs started. This is a trauma patient. And uh, we're going to have a, a one liter, an hour bolus if it's less than two hours of entrapment. So if it was greater than two hours of entrapment, then we're going to get that two liters of, of um, uh, saline on board. Now, I know you said he was writhing in pain, so we can start working on pain management. So fentanyl, uh, ketamine, uh, completely in our protocol, and okay. you know titrate to effect. Yeah. All right. So now you got the pain meds on board, and the squad shows up, and uh, they're getting set up, and they got their airbags in place, and they're about ready to get this guy out of there. Okay. So I mean, there's an, this is an, un, an uncommon call, crush injuries. We're probably going to have a you know one of the things we'll probably do right away is also to let the consortium docs know that way that they can they can maybe either give us better guidance or they have medications that they can, um, they can give if this patient does start to decompensate and needs that RSI that to uh, get that more secure airway. Uh, but one of the things we're going to do right away though, is as they're preparing the lift, we're going to go ahead and give bicarb. So we're going to go ahead and give a full 50 milli equivalents to this patient prior to the weight getting lifted off of them. Um, in addition to keeping that fluid challenge going. So we're looking to what we're looking to do is he's very acidotic. That part of the body wasn't getting blood to it or oxygenation, and so we're really trying to treat the hyperkalemia that uh, could potentially occur after that blood and oxygenation gets re-released to his body, and then we're trying to com combat that with the bicarb and the fluid challenge. Okay, yeah, and just keep an eye on that uh, heart monitor. We're not going to get into full hyperkalemia as we go. Just know that before they're um, going to get that shelf lifted off, we want to push the 50 mil equivalents of bicarb and then just continue to monitor for hyperkalemia. There, there could be more treatment. You need to do that route, but we won't discuss it here. Right. Um, and, you know, very short extrication uh, or short transport time, not going to deal with that too much. So, Okay. So what about some of the other injuries? What are we going to do for uh, the burns on the face so and the we're neck? It was uh what five percent or yeah, so. He estimated about five percent of burns over the face and neck. So I think for the sake of this, we're probably not going to assume that this was a, a cyano kit patient where he had that prolonged exposure to you know uh, carbon monoxide. Um, it was more of just that flash, and it kind of got his face, his airways open. We're going to just gonna treat the the burns with a um, a burn sheet, so dry sterile dressing applied to the injured area. And um, I know you said he's got a shard of glass in his eye. Yeah. So what with eye injuries, that? we're going to go ahead and pad this, this section of uh, the eye wrap where that piece of glass is still in the eye. We're not going to remove it. We're going to try to pad around it and um, immobilize it from moving. And then we're going to cover the unaffected eye. So um, hopefully that will decrease that left-right, up-down movement and you know, keep that, that piece of glass more stabilized and you know that way the er will will then work on getting it removed and treated 
Okay, so with this uh, explosion, you start to hear some strider developing in this patient. Um, I know our our guidelines call for thinking about early intubation, but that's kind of a tricky spot with our guy being conscious. But you do hear a strider developing, and you've got a mechanism to suspect that there's some inflammation going on in the airway. What do we what do we do in that situation? Uh, we immediately crack them. No, uh, <laughs> high flow too. You know, obviously, sometimes we'll start less is more. So nasal cannula, if you can tolerate it, um, non-rebreather, if you can tolerate it. And as he starts to decrease uh, mentation, you know, we really are going to be looking at, if he goes unconscious, crike. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I mean, would you, right, you're suspicious of uh, airway swelling, but he's still conscious. You hear the strider, right? You're not probably going to, you're not going to go to crike with a conscious patient. No. Um, but you're just going to have that high index of uh, suspicion that, you know, as soon as that patient goes unconscious, that's, that's probably going to be, uh, you're going to need to do that right away. You're kind of like watching the trend. Cause we're thinking that happen. this is going to be probably some inhalation burns. Yeah. Um, and he probably isn't even a candidate for that uh, ET tube or that superglottic. So yeah, we're going to be ready to, to move to a crike probably sooner than later. So okay. that's going to mean setting up and having everything out and uh, ready to go. Yeah. And I could imagine just this patient that, you know, you, you have that thought in your mind, but again, you're not going to go ahead and execute that until uh, that patient loses consciousness. If they're still, um, you know, maintaining consciousness that, you know, they're, they're getting enough oxygen at the time. Right. Oh, actually, I wanted to bring up uh, as far-fetched as these couple patients have been in this episode. Uh, you told me you had somebody similar to this guy. Oh, uh, yeah. I was so in my 7-8 unit, I was um, first on scene to an individual that had a blast injury to his hands and um, genital area. He was attempting to take apart a mortar, uh, the big fireworks, you know, explosive that you usually launch out of the tube. Uh, so for whatever reason, he was in his house, he was taking it apart, and uh, he uh, ignited it. And so it blew up in his lap. So I show up on scene, I have a small jump kit, um, a little bit of trauma stuff in there. And uh, he's able to ambulate out. So we get him outside, seated down, start getting him kind of exposed, and uh, his hands are just blasted to pieces. So a lot of soft tissue injury there. And um, wasn't overly, uh, wasn't bleeding a tremendous amount. But we were able to just, I was able to have a trauma uh, burn dressing and some dry dressing. So I was able to get his hands fairly wrapped up. And I did start an IV. Uh, I didn't get any pain meds on board because we had Rescue 7 showing up about the same time I was still trying to get some of this stuff taken care of. When we got him in the back and we got a, uh, started exposing, we did find out that he was burned, you know, in that that that. 1%, uh, the genital area, his arms were burnt uh, inside of his arms. He had a little bit of burning and charring around his face, but nothing that was an inhalation injury that we would have been concerned with. Uh, once we got his hands wrapped up and his burns addressed, pain meds on board, IVs on board, monitored vitals, and he was actually pretty stable and answering questions and was able to kind of walk us through the entire events that happened. All right, Kevin, you mentioned... Uh burns to the genitals also this uh, scenario we had our guy had some burns to the face what facilities can handle these types of burns in albuquerque we're going to want to transport um, these patients to unm there that's the level one trauma center uh, they have a burn unit and uh, so any major or moderate burns that's a uh, that's automatic unm 
Okay, cool. And then um, we talked about obvious UNM patients today, but what are some of the uh, kind of like the in-between cases that the person wants to go to press? Say, say somebody fell off a roof um, and they want to go to press. Can we take them to press or is that an automatic UNM? Uh, no, it, if the, let's say we have that individual, he does fall off. It's, you know, 40 year old male, maybe he has a, not, nothing even obvious. Um, but there's pain to his, you know, lower right leg and, uh, he's ano times four and he says, I want to go to press. Uh, what we'll do is whoever the transporting unit is, we'll take those vitals, get that radio report. Uh, if press says negative, we're going to do a divert on that. Uh, we're not going to accept this patient. We feel that they're a trauma patient. Then at that point, we'll we'll move it to uh, to UNM. But I think that um, you know, within reason, you know, kid falls off his bicycle, has a has a fractured arm, maybe mild, moderate, you know, deformity. That's completely appropriate to go to the press and Loveless. All right. Well, thanks, Kevin. Uh, thanks again for coming on. And do you have any takeaways? Again, this is all encompassing trauma. What are some of the things that you think crews could benefit from? I know we had some uh, very complicated, very uh, injured patients. Um, but one of the things I think that you can do with any trauma is just good BLS goes a long way. So trauma naked and a thorough head to toe. And then you just address everything that you see. Nice. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Don't be scared. Um, you know, gunshot wounds, these are definitely appropriate. You got to take the underwear off. You got to look in the groin. You got to um, look in the armpits. And I think if there's one thing that I've seen is we're a little bit too shy sometimes. Again, you know, once this person is unconscious, you've got to check everywhere. You know, now, if it's just a little scrape on the knee, then that is not appropriate. But, um, you know, serious patient, don't be shy and trauma naked, like you said. Yeah, I know that uh, we, we keep saying it over and over. But yeah, just that, uh, that thorough assessment, you know, fix what you can fix and uh, patch what you can patch. Awesome. All right, guys, thanks for listening and talk to you on the next episode.